Hey folks, it's that time of year again. Time for the Hacker Public Radio 24 Hours New Year's Eve show. We encourage everyone to join us for stimulating conversation and maybe send a Happy New Year's greeting to the HBR community. We plan on starting at 10 a.m. UTC, December 31st, also known as 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we will keep the recording going until 12 a.m. UTC, January 1st, also known as 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, unless people are still on and talking. To join us, all you have to do is install Mumble. It is available on all platforms, including iOS and Android. Then, just create a nick and go to hackerpublicradio.org for the server details. Connect, join the Hacker Public Radio room, and you're there. If you can't join us in Mumble, but would like to hear the show live, we will have a stream up so you can listen. You can go to hackerpublicradio.org for the server details of the stream. So come on and join us. It's always a good time. Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 427.5, recorded on Sunday, December 10th, 2023. Here for the beer, I'm Joe. Christmas shopping is kind of like Mondays, it never seems to end. I'm Bill. In our innards section, we talk about, uh, well, originally we were going to talk about audio editing, but now I think we're going to freeform it. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. No, really, we've got feedback this time. Good feedback. Yeah. Backup is one of those things where there's like all these different methods for accomplishing it. And it's it's not always clear uh, which one is best for you. You know, the, the Mint tool that comes with the uh, uh, distro is actually a pretty good, pretty, pretty good tool. It's It handles uh, regular backups using rsync and then it also speaks ButterFS, so I assume it does like a ButterFS send receive or something like that, and then uh, that's one of those things that just go, you you put it off, and you put it off, and you put it off, and I've actually, unfortunately, I've gotten to the point with my servers where they've been, they've been up and running so well for so long now that I've forgotten how they, a lot of the stuff is set up on them. And because I put so much automation in place, so if I had to go and rebuild it now, you know, I it would probably it would probably be quite an enterprise. Yeah, but that's not the only thing when it comes to backups either, because you can say you backed up, but if you've never tested your restore process, then you cannot be certain that you can come back from something devastating. And I listened to two and a half admins a lot and they talk about these really powerful backup processes they use that provides basically oh they've got basically this real quick path to just mount the backup and then boot from it and everything it's just flawless and then that backup becomes the root and then and then so they, backup from there 
what they do is they create a backup image. They yeah. entirely backup their entire drive, like using a DD or something to that effect. I think in their case, they're big on ZFS, so I'm sure. Um, Whatever imaging oh, there's this that uses. project out there called, uh, uh, not Nagios, but there's another one with a name like that um, that's built just for like ZFS and things that can handle all the backup creates the images fantastic tool and i'm i feel real stupid for i bet people are screaming into their speakers right now but it's a it's a tool that one of the hosts on that show actually created um for creating backups managing the backup process and everything and i don't i don't know if it works on anything besides zfs or zfs but uh I, you know, it's like I've said before, if you don't have a backup, you don't own it. And for that matter, I, and, but there again, not everybody has terabytes of storage at their disposal, you know. I mean, well, I don't back up. I I don't back up a lot of my operating systems, but I know I can rebuild them at the drop of a hat and I store all the data that I care about separately. So for, for me, like like the Jellyfin server, I mean that's that's a considerable amount of data on there, and so I've got a uh, cold storage solution that I use the ZFS replication tools. About once a month, I'll just back it up onto that thing, and then, like we said before, you got to be able to test your backups. So, which is easy in that case because I can just hook that up and then see if the files play on it, you know, because it's just media, um, and then the next cloud. The next cloud is backed up onto this machine with the next cloud um, desktop client, which I got directly from. Uh, I, I found the best way to get that tool is directly from the website, the app image. Thank you for reminding me because backing up my home doesn't necessarily back up my, um, my root cron and um, does not back up uh, my FS tab. Yeah. Now, the FS tab, that's an interesting one because I, what I tend to do on that is uh, do a git pull or a git push, and I send that up to my GitHub account because it's just, it's a text file, and that's a good place to have it, and it'll be, it'll be good to go right there for a long period of time, you know. So that I need because I've got, like this, this machine, for example, I've got uh, the second hard drive is a like a ButterFS storage pool, and I've got it mounted with a bunch of a bunch of sub volumes, and then there's oh, uh, I can never remember the right mount options every time. So it's it's a good idea to have a backup of your FS table just to be able to just copy and well, paste that and get everything. If in. I'm backing up all my settings for um, like Plex or, or my Plex and things like that then I need all of those drives to be mounted in the same locations when I boot up a new system. So, yeah, it's definitely good for me to have the, the FS tab backed up as well. I don't, I don't necessarily need it right at first boot. See, because what I've got is that, that second drive in this machine is just butter FS, because you can write butter FS without a uh, table. It can be right there on the root of the device. And then the... Subvolumes are kind of your arbitrary, I don't know, partition scheme. 
it's it's not the same thing, but it can be the machine can kind of interpret it that way. I don't necessarily need that to be um, there at boot because what I'll then do is create a uh, a directory in my home directory and name it production, and then once I get that backed up FS table uh, on the machine and then reboot, then it mounts that second drive into slash home slash me slash production. And then I've got all my, that's actually the drive that I use for storing all these audio files and recordings and the working directory for Audacity and whatnot. Um, What I used to do and what used to be kind of the common thing to do back in the day was to just basically mount your whole home directory onto a second hard drive. But then what I found was you get some performance degradation involved in that because that second hard drive is almost always the slower hard drive. Right. Because you put your root system onto, you know, your SSD or your M.2, and then you put your home onto a spinning disk or whatever's handy, or even a USB stick. I've seen that for security purposes where you can just turn around and walk away with that. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, that is, it, it is going to take a degradation hit because you are, you know, reading from a second source. Your dot configs, all your dot files, which, any and all, even the desktop itself is going to be sourcing the uh, configs from that home directory. So I would and that's say the other thing that's the other thing that um, that you have to worry about is yeah, you have all your configs there, but then you have to install the applications again. Otherwise, those configs are doing absolutely nothing. Yeah, and that can get that can get cluttered. It can get I don't know. It's it's good practice to clean that up as often as you can. I, I'm thankful for, like, uh, Firefox having a, a sort of profile tool or backup mechanism to where everything that's on Firefox is backed up. The same's true with Chromium and Chrome, in any browser for that imagine. Um, I'm, all, I'm also pretty sure that my um, uh, graphics card is dying because I'm getting a lot of uh, visual artifacts on Chrome, and it's the only machine that I'm getting it on. And I'm also having some problems with uh, certain video file playback with Plex, even like locally if I'm doing it with Plex. But uh, I'm not getting it when I play the file directly. It's a transcoding issue, but Plex uses the graphics card to do the transcoding. So Jellyfin does too. If you pass, if you pass the um, oh, there's an access thing you've got to do in the uh, Docker. Uh, compose where you give it access to the hardware and then it's like on this machine for example it's using quicksync off of the soc to uh do the transcoding and that seems to work really well um yeah well it's good to you know give it access to the graphics card to be able to do the transcoding unless of course you know your graphics card is dying but it is a really old graphics it's a radeon uh 570 i think so, so it's a little I'm, bit older. I've got a Fire Pro. Well, I've got a Radeon Pro in this thing now, and it just screams. Um, I've got a Fire Pro 7100 laying over there and a 5100. So the 7100 is considerably more money. But if you want that 5100, I can send that to you. I just mail it to me. Yeah, I'll, I'll 
definitely swap it. Well, I'm also supposed to be getting some uh, Micro Center gift cards, but... Um, oh, my. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Considering how expensive graphics cards still are at Micro Center, it might be better for you just to mail me one. Yeah. I'll send you that 5100 because that's still okay. fairly decent. Um, well, my 570 has been doing great for what I use it for. It's just, you know, dying. Yep, as they tend to do because those suckers get hot sometimes depending on what you're using them for. And I am in Texas. There's that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, duplicating and backing up is, gosh, there's other tools out there like... Uh, what was the one that used to be really popular that came with Ubuntu? Maybe it still does. The Was it just called Backup? Or it had a funny name, didn't it? It looked like a safe, the uh, icon to it. I was trying to remember the name of it the other day, but I haven't been able to. So. It was just a simple backup tool where you told it, back up this and put it over here. And it basically just either used an R clone back end or a or a DD backend or whatever, but it was the simpler, the better. And it's even better if you can create like a, uh, either an archive or like a single image file and then keep those on a larger drive. Or even if you could compress them somehow. Um, yeah, I've gotten to the point now where if I don't do something soon, I'm going to completely forget how these things were built. So, yeah, backing up is just an invaluable thing. Well, for thing. you, a, a DD backup might be worth it. But like I said, I'm trying to get rid of some of the cruft that I have. So, And I, I need to do some learning on how to back up Docker images because, as most people Copy do... Copy and paste. Basically, yeah. It's not clear. Those persistent... Docker directories are they're saved with like a the the file name is like a hash or something like that so it's not always clear what well, is what with the with Docker I mean you you don't get image updates unless you wipe out and restore so then the only thing you have to worry about backing up is the um, mounts that you provide to Docker so for the external information that is you know significant to you as opposed to um, significant to the Docker image because you're always going to be able to do a fresh pull on the Docker image. Even if you want to go back a version, I think there's still a way to do that. You just have to specify the version you want to pull. Yep. So it's, they call it a tag. You, you can like all of my containers have uh, the name of the image and then there's a colon and then the tag, which if you tell it latest tag, it'll always go and fetch the latest image. When right. it does which that. is how people which is how people update and so yeah. long as they keep the right mount points then the the data that they're using is correct which is what I used to do when I used you know docker all the time instead of you know now docker's got two two um, persistent uh, storage options you've got you've got the option where you tell it okay I need you to make such and such directory in the Docker image persistent, meaning it doesn't get fried when you uh, power down the container and then re and then because most everything, unless you tell it otherwise, most everything on a Docker container is ephemeral. It gets erased and then rebuilt unless you tell it this directory I need to be persistent. In which case, it kind of gets saved within the Docker system 
as a uh, Docker volume, which is kind of saved in kind of a secret place, and then it's given a hash for a name and all that. It's not really meant to be uh, accessed by any other means except for Docker. Your other option is to literally bind mount a directory outside of Docker into the Docker container, which means anything Docker does will get saved in that directory outside the container. And then it's persistent for that reason, which... Which is really the only way to handle a lot of your configs right. or um, the access that like the Plex Docker would have. And if you wanted to install something, sometimes you'll run into a situation where you want to install something on the container. Like if you was getting in that container, if you was shelling into the container a lot and you needed to have nano because if you if you, you you find that when you get in there and you go looking for nano, it's not there. So you install it and then you do whatever work in the shell for that container and then you restart the container and nano is gone and it's because the dot usr or you or you you know uh man up and learn vim well that's not there by default either i mean it's not they, always it loses anything that gets installed other than what is built into the container and it also no. loses updates trust me i tried but yeah, uh, yeah. It, you can't because those updates are not part of the the docker build you know so you, you if you go outside of of what uh was originally developed on that container the next time it goes down and starts back up you're unless you do something crazy like make your dot usr dot lib directories persistent and then it has no choice but then you're going to screw it up for other reasons you know so docker is just one of those things you kind of have to take it the way it is in most cases Unless you, well, the other option you have is to get a hold of the Docker file and change things on that. That way, when it gets built, it gets built against that. But, uh, yeah, I used to have some interesting problems where one Docker image would get updated and another one wouldn't be updated as often, such as um, <clears throat> using one of the Docker images for a VPN and having, um, the net func network functionality passed from one Docker image to another Docker image. And then the, the Docker image of the application that I was using would get an update and then it would no longer work properly with the VPN network. So. <laughs> Maddening. But I was also, you know, definitely not using that the way that it was meant to be used either. Yeah, that's the thing about that. If you, you go outside of their ways of doing things, you well, one thing's sure, you don't want to use any automation because a tool like Watchtower, which in an, in itself is a Docker container, you fire that up and it literally just keeps your containers uh, up to date and shuts them down, updates the image, starts it back up. That's automation that I need because I'm on the road all week and I need these things kept up to date. Uh, otherwise, I'll be, every weekend when I'd come home, I'd be maddeningly updating all this stuff. Normally, it's, it's painless and it works really well. Every once in a great while, you'll Something run into breaks. this. Well, yeah, you run into this strange malignment where, uh, for example, all of our websites everything from mintcast.org to linuxotc.org, threefattruckers.org, um, and a couple others are all running on Docker containers. 
on one machine and they're all dependent on a separate MariaDB container. Now, officially, when you get the Docker container for WordPress, it's set up for like an older version of MySQL. And since I know better than they do, I went, I changed that to the latest version of MariaDB because I, I just wanted MariaDB. And uh, every once in a great while, you'll get this weird malignment with that because it's maybe the the one thing gets updated, but the other thing doesn't. Or, you know, one one thing's expecting a feature that uh, is not there or whatever. But in the year and a half I've had that running that way, well, maybe not quite that long, about a year I've been running it on Docker. It's been, for the most part, flawless. I've not heard any complaints about the websites whatsoever. Well, a couple of times we've had issues with links pointing internally instead of externally. Yeah, and that'll happen if you if you build a WordPress and then you spin it up uh, by addressing its internal IP address, and then you go into all the WordPress options, and it like assigns that internal IP address to all of the links. And then when you do get it converted over to the to the host name of the website, it doesn't get everything switched back over. So you find these things a little at a time. I think that one that Londoner found some some months back had been sitting there like that for two or three months that I'm aware of. Just you know, addressed linked to my internal IP address when it shouldn't have been. So. WordPress tries to go through and change everything when you when you get your host name resolved to that server, but it doesn't get everything and it's almost impossible to catch all of it too because there's permalinks all over the place in a website like ours. Mincast.org is actually a pretty big website in terms of how much stuff is on it that's built up over the years just because of how long the show has been around, you know, but, uh, you know, Docker's been, Docker has proven to be pretty reliable for that. I have to say, I mean, it's a real, it's a real good solution. All you guys started moving to Docker when I started moving away from Docker. Now I like Docker and it is a good solution, but it did have its back or its uh, update problems. And then, um, I found that running things bare bones was a little bit quicker, and yeah, it takes a little bit more work on my part, but not by much. So, not really. And our next cloud is actually installed bare metal, and it's turned out to be fine that way because I'm actually able to get in there and make configurations a lot easier and get it updated a lot easier. Whereas with Docker, you're kind of at the mercy of Docker with yeah. these things. Are the it, individuals that are packaging it? Yeah, I mean there is that. You're you're kind of at the same mercy. It's it's like you're you're placing a lot more trust in a developer by using Docker because it's not just their package that they're giving you. They're giving you just enough operating system minus the kernel to make that thing run. You know, and the changes that you make are not persistent unless you. Mount the config separately. Yeah. Which, in most cases, is handled by using a Docker Compose. That way, all of that stuff is... It's not persistent in terms of the file system, but it's 
persistent in terms of it's in the recipe for the image to build into the container, you know, which it's your own case, personal Docker compose. Yeah, correct. So. And sometimes that's a matter of going to the community because people, people are out there sharing Docker compose files, you know, like, well, this is what I use to get this thing working and it seems to work better or, if you're wanting to add things, you know, it's there's actually a lot of creativity involved, I think, in putting all these options in a Docker Compose to make it do things you want it to do. Yeah, I still have all my old Docker commands with all the different setups for the different, with listings for the different machines in, in, in my uh, notes that I have sitting around. So that way I can still set things up. And, you know, it literally was, as long as I was on the correct machine, a matter of copy and paste. Or take that command and modify it for a new machine and then copy and paste. Um, I never used Docker Compose, but from what I understand, it kind of works the exact same way, except, you know, you're executing it instead of copying and pasting. It's just that when you are when you use a Docker Compose, it's a YAML file, so there's that little bit of weirdness involved, too. And... Uh, but, um, yeah, in my case, it was kind of necessary because if, you, if you're going to run a bunch of websites on one machine, you really, you're really either limited to creating a bunch of virtual servers and then installing it in bare metal, and then you have to use all these strange uh, uh, port numbers for each and then you have to probably end up having to either do... Well, with Docker, you still have to do the exact same thing. You still you do, got to forward the right ports. You're binding it. If you if you put it behind a... See, all this stuff is also behind a uh, reverse proxy, which lets every single one of these Docker images think it's the only thing running because it's behind that pro that proxy, and that proxy is taking that traffic and sending it directly to that to that container so the containers really don't have a marvelous idea of each other because the reverse proxy is handling that. And that's the, that's the other little piece of magic behind all this is that you could still do all the TLS and the, the, uh, uh, SL, uh, the let's encrypt stuff. And that's all handled automatically by the Nginx reverse proxy manager. And then all that traffic comes in on, uh, port 80 and 443 and then it's like sent to the individual port of the container which you can make that anything um as far as let's encrypt is concerned though it looks like it's when they go to get the certificate it looks like it's on port 443 when in actuality it might be on port 4043 or something like that internally um, but that's the beauty of the reverse proxy is it, it just lets everything run and think that it's the only thing running. Um, and I've not run into any limitations as far as that goes. That's the other thing kind of surprised me too, because each one of these websites has got its own database container. And recently I set up Redis, uh, object storage or object, uh, memory backends forum and that's also separate containers and each one of these websites has got its own separate MariaDB and Redis and it does not add measurable 
resource intensity to the system at all. You would think it'd be kind of like running all of these things, you know, times four or times five. And in terms of memory usage, it's actually, it actually runs really, really efficiently. Uh, it's kind of hard to imagine that it would run any better than that if it was all bare metal. Because if it was bare metal, if I was doing all these bare metal and then, I don't know, putting Cloudflare in front of all these websites and using esoteric port numbers and things like that, then I would have one database that would have one database uh, installation that would have separate tables for each one of these websites. And if, like, for example, MariaDB went down, it would take down all of those websites at one time because it's only one installation of MariaDB, which the way it's set up now is each one of these websites has got its own container. So if one website goes down, it doesn't take the rest of them down with it. So, I mean, that's that's the advantage. And it's just, it's been doggone reliable, I think. I think all the all the little paper cut stuff on our website's been worked out over time. It seems to be good. So, backing up of all that stuff is something I need to work on, though, because admittedly, it's not been... It's not been all that great. Like I said, I mostly just back up the the data that's on it, which I feel like I feel like it's enough because beyond that, it's really just you know reinstalling Nextcloud and like repopulating the data on the drive is it's a pain in the butt, but you know it it would be doable. Uh, I can't speak to like everybody's personal data that they've put on, if they have put anything personal in the uh, Nextcloud. If the if any if anybody does, they really need to be doing their own backup solution for that. Um, I think I have one file on your Nextcloud. I I know you got a resume on there that you put in the Mintcast. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I put it into the wrong Nextcloud, but yeah, it's another. <laughs> but, well, I mean, it, it's taking up no space whatsoever. Yeah. So. Uh, if and if anybody needed more space, I would give it to them. I just I just got one gigabyte set up for default. That way, if twenty people that were using it, you know, it's not going to get filled up that quick. But I mean, it's going to at the rate we're going, it's going to take years to fill that thing up. And by that time, I probably will have upgraded to bigger hard drives anyway. Because that's the other thing. Hard drives don't last forever, no matter how much spend money you spend no, on don't. them. You know? SSDs last a little bit longer than spinning discs, but, you know, things can still happen to SSDs. They absolutely eventually, can. Eventually, they all break, so enjoy them while you got them. Yeah. Especially the cheaper ones. I mean, you can buy SSDs now for just, I mean, insanely cheap for some of these things. I think I bought a couple of silicon power ssds for i got a 500 gig and i don't think i paid 20 some bucks for that thing and and it but it's great for quick fixes on people's laptops yep gets it back up and running yeah the crucials they're they're pretty cheap too um now for my systems i tend to go for the samsung's for like this this one's got a two terabyte well, even even those cheap SSDs, the the twenty dollars five hundred gigs or whatever, I mean, they're they're still faster than a spinning disk. They're oh, not big, as fast, big time. It's like the Evos or whatever, or the M dot twos, but still, they work. And I've had some that have lasted for you know several years now, so I can't complain. 
about the price performance. I paid a little bit of money on the storage for these machines. These, well, no matter how you cut it, if you're getting a 12 terabyte hard drive, it's going to cost you money. <laughs> oh, I'm not so even talking I've, about those. Yeah, I've, those I've, were. I've, I've spent money on storage oh, yeah. because I have 12 terabyte drives and 8 terabyte drives and uh, 8 terabyte drives are probably getting older. But it's my 4 terabyte drives that died. I still have some 2 terabyte drives that have lasted like 12 years. I mean, it's 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 insane how long those 2 terabyte drives have lasted me. But um, I, I've also upgraded several times since then. Yeah, three three of those <laughs> three of those 12 terabyte Iron Wolf drives for that jellyfin server that's that's about eleven hundred dollars worth of storage right there because um, those are pretty heavy duty drives yeah, the iron wolf drives are expensive i usually don't buy that expensive of a drive i usually spend about um 120 130 dollars for you know a 12 terabyte drive it might not have been necessary to spend, but they were they were made for the NAS work cases, so yeah. I went with that. And they're they're not shingled; they're they're highly recommended by the guys on Two and a Half Admins. Not that that was the main reason why I bought them. I just seemed like the best specs. If I was going to do it, I wanted to do it once. Um, then the the next cloud server. Bill's secretly a Bitcoin billionaire and doesn't want to tell anybody. <laughs> I've spent so much money on this stuff. I've spent the kind of money other people spend on their cars. Right. Um, but the, t the two terabyte drives that are in oh. the... Uh, uh, Let's not even talk about the price of cars these days. My God. I, what You know, I was looking at a... What was it? Oh, it was a Ford Explorer. No. Before you get into that... My wife sent me an article on this guy that bought an electric vehicle for $16,000. I think it was a, a used vehicle that he did buy for $16,000. And it was only like, you know, two, three, four years old. And then he found out that the battery was only at like 60 or 70% efficiency. And so it was time to replace the battery. And he went to the company to find out how much it would be for a battery. And it was going to be $18,000 for the battery and $2,000 for the installation. I think I saw this article. Yeah. <laughs> that is bug nuts, man. You didn't pay that much for the car, but you got to pay that much for the battery. Okay. No, you were talking. I'm I, sorry. I'm, I'm seeing uh, sticker prices on things like Ford Explorers upwards of $80,000 now. And... That is just not... But, you know, the only reason these things exist is because knuckleheads are going out there and paying for it and taking out six six and seven-year loans on vehicles now, and it's just insane. The idea of paying $30,000 for a vehicle kind of drives me nuts. And then there, the, that, that's like your cheap cars now are the $30,000 ones if you're looking to buy new. And, and like... 45 for moderately um, specced vehicles and then upwards from there. And that's just insane to me. Yeah, I agree. And the, the e-vehicle thing is not, that's not the answer either. I'm, I think <sighs> I got a bad well, feeling about that. I, I've mentioned 
before my whole perceptions on the e-vehicles until we get the proper infrastructure for that and until we get a proper um, way of, you know, getting power to those vehicles that isn't, you know, a coal-burning facility as it is, then it's kind of pointless to say that this is an environmental improvement getting a electric vehicle if the power to your house that's powering your electric vehicle is all coming from non-clean sources anyway. And that's not to mention the geopolitical impact on these third world countries where a lot of these rare earth materials are coming right. from. And right. Well, that has a lot to do with like solar panels as well, because, you know, all, all the stuff that goes into making solar panels has to get dug out of the ground somewhere. Right. And that's usually a very dirty process. Plus, if you look at the trucking industry, cough, cough, bill, cough, cough, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you can't really make a 10 ton truck and 10 ton trailer that oh, efficiently work. Okay. I, I was going at the low end here, but yeah, 40 <laughs> ton truck and trailer that um, efficiently uses electric power. Maybe, maybe hybrid, maybe. But electric, no. You would spend more time charging than you would moving. And we do the truck shows uh, at, with Three Fat Truckers, and we go walking around, and no serious people are even considering electric vehicle, you know, electric fully full-on semi-trucks it's just not it's not feasible i really think i i can't remember who said it but they said it best when uh, they said um, e-vehicles did not come along to save the the uh ecosystem environment. the environment they come along to save the auto industry that was struggling for a save face kind of half-baked solution to the world kind of shifting towards a more uh, environmentally conscious way of doing things and and maybe maybe we do have to go through this period where it's not a clean solution to to switch to electric but we have to go through these different iterations of terrible vehicles yeah and i tend before to before we can come to a proper solution that's kind of what i was thinking it's just one of those things we got to get through, and then somehow during the process of trying to make that work, we stumble on something that is meaningful, like hydrogen or something along those lines. Which it's hard to store enough hydrogen to make that efficient as well. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying there. The only byproduct of a hydrogen engine is, you know, water. And the moment that comes online, the e-vehicles are, are finished. I mean, and there are serious people working on that. Yeah, but so, it's the storing of hydrogen that's an issue. Yeah. It's also, um, you can't really put enough of um, hydrogen into a vehicle to make it perform with any type of efficiency as well. But, uh, yeah, I mean, growing pains. Yep. That's Maybe it. the electric vehicle will be the solution, but there's going to be a whole lot of changes that have to happen before it's actually a viable solution. Yeah. Um, I have seen where uh, Biden was endorsing um, uh, rail travel, like for individuals, which could then reduce overall emissions, 
And if we had a more viable rail system for shipping, which seems like rather difficult when you're talking town to town. So I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it could reduce in the long run. Yeah, I, I mean, at least, at least we're in the beginning, if nothing else, of a better, a better consciousness towards these things, you know, um, a reduction of resilience on our reliance on uh, fossil fuels, a finite resource, right? That as as much as people are convincing themselves that it is big enough to get by for the foreseeable future, it's not big enough to get by forever. We're definitely burning it off faster than it's being re- being made. Yeah. And not not only that, but you know, people are going to complain the costs are going up, the costs are going up, the costs are going up on gas. But you know what? Um that supply and demand, there's more demand for it, there's a reducing supply of it. What what are you supposed to do here? It's the cost is just going to go up. It is. As long as people are as long as people are willing to pay $5 They'll try to charge you six, and if you pay six, eventually it's going to go up to seven. And well, the U.S. usually pays per gallon a lot less than most other places do due to government subsidies. But um, you know, anything over a dollar, and people start crying. Oh yeah, not that they don't pay it, but now when I was in Germany in the early nineties, and I mean like ninety two, um, they were rationing fuel to us. Uh, the the registrant when you would go get a car plated, you had to get it inspected over there, which yeah. Um and then the Fair registration. You do. Yeah. There used to be a lot more states that did it, but anymore I guess I don't know, maybe they found that not enough people could pass, so <laughs> but uh we were paying I think in those days on average about seventy nine seventy nine, eighty nine cents a gallon for gas and the Germans I want to say they were at about four mark fifty a liter, which you're looking yeah. at way over five and six dollars a gallon in the when early nineties. Korea, yeah, when I was in Korea in ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand, two thousand one, somewhere in there, but um, the gas prices were like two bucks um, a liter, which means you know like eight bucks yeah. a gallon. So. Yeah. I mean, that's these countries like that. That's why you see so many more people riding bicycles or. Or why their vehicles are extremely tiny or why mm-hmm. they're driving, why they're driving mopeds. I mean, their trucks look like Tonka toys, but yeah. I could just imagine the, the cost of trucking in Europe. Um, the trucks are different for a lot of reasons over there. They, anything that's 200 years old, here in America is about 1,100 years old in Europe, and as such, there's less room to get around, so most things have to be unloaded from the street, so the trucks are a little bit more accommodating for a bit of a different... There's also, well, I know last year there was a lot of news coming out of Europe about the truckers either striking or there not being enough truckers because truckers simply weren't able to make money due to the costs and the regulations involved. We're seeing a lot of that here in the States, too. Um, my company is down about 15 drivers. Uh, not even Walmart is starting people off at six figures, and they can't keep drivers. 
Well, in the early aughts, I remember that there was um, a large problem in the trucking industry when um, gas prices first started spiking with diesel. And truckers were paying for their own gas, and they were actually in the negatives a lot of time because of how the price spike in diesel went and the fact that um, the payments from companies weren't matching. So... And a lot of times, yeah, because the companies want the drivers to fuel, like sometimes, I guess, I've never actually had a job that did this, but some companies, they dispatch you your run where you'll pick it up here and then they tell you to fuel here, 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 and here because the companies, they're they're big enough and branched out enough to where they've got deals going on with all these these different truck stop chains and these fuel distributors and all that. And drivers will go to the places they want to go to sometimes and then they turn in the paperwork for that and the company doesn't pay for the fuel now that's that's only true for owner operators if you're a company driver you we carry a card around with us and we just i can feel wherever i want and i just pay with that card and then seven in a big rig yep (laughs) that was an interesting that was interesting i for those that are unaware, uh, I don't know what, like a year ago, Joe turned me on to this this uh, YouTube series where... From the, Reddit. Yeah, the guy was reading from Reddit this story of a fairly new trucker and his experience with a team-oriented company, which I don't know why anybody in their right mind would go do something like that, but this guy was having... Uh, shall we say, interesting experience with the co-driver that he was assigned to be with. Now, you'll have teams in the trucking industry because a lot of times, like, for example, freight that comes out of California, like produce and things like that, needs to be shipped back across the country within 36 hours because it's produce. It's, it's things that will, it's literally losing life as it sits in the trailer. So it's got to hurry up and get across we drivers are limited to 11 hours of drive time a day, and then we have to be off duty for 10 hours before we can do it again. So teams is the only way to do it because then the truck can literally run around the clock. And there are companies out there that that's the only way they do it. And historically teams have been husbands and wives, but there is a marked um, diminishing number of married couples doing that anymore and so it's kind of gone to um you got a lot of foreigners i when i say foreigners i mean people refugees from other countries and that and they're they have uh they've got experience driving truck in their country so it's it's an obvious choice for people like that and they don't mind teaming up sometimes you'll see three and four guys in one truck or a guy there'll be two families two complete families living in a truck (laughs) i've seen it before and they they do all that team type stuff, um, but as far as the fuel goes, yeah, if you don't do exactly what the company tells you, and I'm not real sure why a guy would do that, other than you know he likes the showers in this other place a little bit better, so he'd rather fuel there. And it's just an overregulated uh, industry, and it's it's a lot. There's a lot of trouble a guy can get into. Uh, as far as like if you get into an accident and they've got you on film texting and driving or something like that which that's another thing um you can get into a serious amount of trouble 
but uh technology that's that's that is one interesting thing i like to bring up is how technology has made that job way better for i don't i don't look back with quite as much romanticism as some of the older guys to the days when we didn't have the we didn't have the uh phones so we had to like call the customers and ask for directions and you would always get somebody that's been working there for 40 years and they don't know their way in well now we've got google maps which there's that's a bit hit and miss <laughs> but it's it's better than what we had before and it's caused a cultural shift the technology in trucking because we're so well connected in our trucks you see far less of the culture in the truck stops of drivers connecting with each other because we've got all this technology at our fingertips so it's one of those things where the positive change came at a cost i think and that kind of applies to a lot of things in technology i think where it kind of made our lives better but it took away some of the some of the community behind the struggle if there's some of the cb community died down oh gosh cb radios so when i was younger when you would get closer to a major metropolitan area or a densely populated area you could not get a word in edgewise on the radio i mean you literally had to turn it down because the the collective sort of static noise from all of the the density of radios within that area you would literally have to turn it down because it would be a a loud conglomerated screechy sound nowadays it's almost dead silent with the exception of like the rare individual that comes across talking about something but you don't have none of the newer guys that are coming out nowadays use the radios we use them because of the type of freight we haul a lot of times when we're going into a customer that's how they that's how we interact with them how we check but it's in all with them. business related at that point as opposed to it the is. community that used to be around yeah and i mean it still exists it's just nowhere near the same in the same form i used to spend a little bit I of money on the radio yeah, I imagine that it's less with the trucking community and more with the, um, you know, just the enthusiast hobbyist community. You've got a couple of guys out there that are running base stations that are putting out serious power. There's a guy that I hear every day, calls himself Mud Duck out in New Mexico, and I hear him talking to people all over. There's no way I would be able to talk back to him to where he could hear me. But to get a 27.185 megahertz signal from New Mexico to Indiana, and I've heard him all the way out to the East Coast, is so much power. Well, so high of modulation that he's got to be bleeding over people's TV signals. Well, my, uh, my foster father uh, back in the day used to talk about um, signal skips. Basically, you know, people talking to you from half a continent away and not knowing how the, the, the signal had reached from freaking California to freaking Iowa. And it's not because they were, you know, overpowering or anything. It's just... Yeah, you do have this, this situation where if, if you have the perfect... Uh, weather conditions um 
the signal can go up into the uh, ionosphere or whatever and bounce off of that and come back down. So basically, it gets it gets repeated off the atmosphere in a way that uh, it's like that's where the signal come from. So it gets kind of doubled in its intensity. And then if you've got a big tower, base station or something, you're already putting out serious power. You can get all over the place. I've heard people, I've heard people all the way as far as Puerto Rico getting on there and, and uh, you can't hear what they're saying, but you can, the guy will say something along the lines of walkie talkie, walkie talkie, Puerto Rico, walkie talkie, Puerto Rico. And, it just kind of fades out as you move away from, you know, the, the area that where perfect the perfect spot. Yeah. Yeah. From the perfect spot. And that you got to think, man, oh man, that's quite a ways for a CB signal to get, you know, when there's so many other, <laughs> when there's so many other better ways to communicate nowadays, it's kind of cool though, that people are still using that, that old kind of maybe antiquated method, but it still works at short distances so it's still effective i think i do know some other podcasters that have their ham license and still like buying radios and using radios and talk about the different antennas that they get to talk to people all over the place so the community is still there it's just not used as much in business as it used to be and i know that there's also a lot of projects to use um like the cb radio as a backup um internet provider just in case it's just you know abysmally slow and obviously dropped packets and things like that but it's still there and it would probably work fairly well it's just kind of the old-fashioned bbs style communicating where it's just very low bandwidth data going back and forth you know that would probably transfer relatively easily through a signal like that you know there is kind of a crossover i think in the linux uh, in the Linux world with, with ham radios. Uh, there was an episode, well, I don't know how long ago, but it's had to have been close to a year now on Linux Unplugged where Noah was on. He was talking about ham radios because he's a, he's a huge enthusiast. Well, I used to listen to Linux in the ham shack all the time. Yeah. And they talk about things like they got things they, they got these things like, uh, what'd they call it? Tune your gutters where some people might live in an HOA where they're not supposed to have antenna towers. So they'll literally run signal from their gutters. There's a way, there's a way to make that happen. And it's not, it's nowhere near as optimized, but it, it works if you need it to work and you can't, your HOA won't allow you to put up a tower, which I would say if you were a ham operator, you got no business living somewhere like that anyway. But anyway, I digress. That, yeah, interesting stuff. I think that's going to have to be our innards. Yep, that'll since, work. Since, <laughs> since uh, sorry people, uh, we had an issue where, where our, our original topic kind of fell through, and we basically had nothing for today, so... It th- didn't, this... didn't make a lot of sense to come up with anything on the spur of the moment. I wasn't... Well, okay, so our original topic was going to be audio editing, and both Joe and I know enough to have dabblers. a conversation. Yeah, petty dabblers. I mean, I I'm the I do the editing on all three of the shows I'm on, um, and I've each done one the of those editing for McCast. Yep, Joe does. Joe was doing it long before I was even here. Um, 
so we've got enough to talk about, but there was, I think it was, it would have been a better topic to have people like uh, Eric around because he's used things like Reaper and I think he said he used, he's used Ardour in the past. I'm not sure. But then Majid as well because of Majid and his other right podcasts. Yeah. And he's, he's got a level of curiosity and he's able to put that curiosity into words a little bit better than I am. So I thought it'd be better to, well, we, Joe and I decided it'd be better to wait until a time when we've got a fuller crew to talk about a topic like that. Cause audio editing is one of those things that's really, really important when you make these shows, you know, you could just take this, this feed right here and turn it into an MP3 and, and upload it. And it would be what it is. And I'm sure there's people out there that do that, but, if you want to create a product that's um, that sounds professional, that sounds well made, it's worth the extra effort to not only learn how to create the audio in the best way possible, but uh, also, and we'll talk about that on a later date because we actually there's actually two recordings going on uh, on my machine, and then there's two different things going on on, on uh, Joe's as well. You know, we're streaming off to YouTube, but we're also creating uh, discrete recordings of our individual microphones, and that all gets added to the final product. It's easier to, you know, create a more congruent audio that way, and, well, anyway, we'll talk more about that later, but, uh, yeah, that'll, that'll do it for the Linux innards. Moving on to vibrations from the ether, and we've got some this time. What do you think, Joe? Go ahead. All right. The first one is from Stan, and I do want to say that we did not include my responses, but I did respond to both of the emails that are in here today. Guys, um, I had not been listening for a while. Don't know why I ever stopped. Uh, I downloaded two years of episodes, and I'm only now up to November 2022. Listening to back episodes is going slower than I would like, but almost every one of them is worth the time. They often cover topics and issues that I wrongly thought I had a good understanding. I connected to the last bit of the streamed session on 26 November. May not start listening to all newer sessions until I finish all the back sessions. Too many valuable gems to skip any of them. I'm looking forward to more consistent following and participating. I wanted to wait until I was all caught up before suggesting my topics of interest. I was thinking that you may have already have covered them, but since you have asked, I will throw them out for your consideration and possibly give everyone a chance to do research. I would like you to cover some tools that I find very useful when trying to connect remotely to Linux beginners. I have made the port changes to my router to the allow, allow the use of Gitso for making it easier for novice users to use my connection remotely with mouse and screen use. I also use Remina and X2Go with my daily driver laptop and three other PC desktop. Works much better than a hardware KVM switch. I have concerns about the future of Gitso, Remina, and X2Go. Using the public um, meet.jit.c remote software, I host a Linux beginner workshop on the fourth Tuesday of every month and 
co-host a vendor independent configuration and hardware workshop the first Thursday of each month. Meetings are free format and open to all. And there is a link, newlinux.org. That is... No. Yeah, uh, sorry, I was just going to say, that is actually really interesting. And don't ever, anybody, be afraid to ask us to cover topics that we might have covered in the past. Because if one thing is true, these things tend to evolve. You know, even if we've talked about them, chances are there's been in innovations, there's been improvements, you know, we might have learned something that we didn't know at the time, you know, so... Going back I over mean, these things that's interesting to the audience is, I don't have a problem with that at all. How many times have I talked about remote access or tablets right. yeah. or anything like that? It changes. There's new stuff. I still find it interesting. If enough people start asking about remote access and VPNs, then it's time to start talking about remote access and VPNs again. So now I have not heard of Gitso or Ramina. I do know X2Go. But that's because Remnant talk comes, about all the time. comes by default on Ubuntu, on okay. the desktop Ubuntu. Remina, that's their. Uh, I don't know if it's a canonical project, but it is their default, and it must work with Wayland, otherwise, because I think I'll have to check on that a little, a little bit better. Because there, I think Ubuntu is on Wayland by default now, and that was the thing about uh, about desktop sharing. Uh, full stop was that you're you were not going to get the best results on Wayland so that was one of the things that needed to be that was part of the reason why I think Canonical went to Wayland uh at one point was it in the 17 series or or uh the 18 series yeah something and, like that they, they yeah, switched and then hard they, to Wayland and then switched they back. and then they switched back immediately and a lot of that was because of a uh, remote desktop and it just wasn't there I mean, yet. So yeah, I also have my concerns with like X2Go and any type of sharing application. Um, I'm pretty sure X2Go is going to die when Wayland takes over unless um, some major changes happen. So yeah, I, I see the concern there. And um, I also, yeah, I use X2Go sometimes like a KVM switch just so I can control um, another machine, um, one of my own machines remotely. But, um, I mean, if they're in the same room, then I might use Barrier instead, but yeah. Interesting stuff. We hope to hear from you in the future. And, uh, again, don't, do not hesitate to jump on, uh, uh, round table with us on, uh, and Saturdays. I, I'm going to have to check. I don't know if Barrier works on Wayland. That, that I have not actually tried any of these, and I've been. I would be. Well, I mean, obviously, I would be interested in in uh, desktop, remote desktop, just because I'm out there on the road. I mean, I live without it. I just right. SSH through WireGuard back into the servers, you know, which is just a headless thing. But if yeah, I well, had a way to. X2Go is my tool of choice for uh, X11 systems um, for remote access, but Barrier is a little bit different. So if you have two computers in like the same room uh, and you have Barrier set up, then you can share the keyboard and mouse between them. Oh, I think I've heard them talk about that on Late Night Linux a while back. Yeah. Um, like Synergy. It's actually yeah. a fork of Synergy. Right on. But yeah. Uh, uh, okay, so then we have another email from jblackman199. 
Uh, I just finished listening to 426.5, Cry Havoc and Bring Forth the Tablets of War. Fantastic name, by the way. That was Majid's doing. He's got quite a knack for it. Uh, And I'd like to respectfully disagree with something. I bought an old HB 2-in-1 and a Lenovo stylus that supports MPP 2.0 this semester. The total cost ended up being about $110 overall. I put Arch Linux with GNOME on it, and I've been using both External++ and RNote for taking notes in class and do homework. I've got to say, I haven't been disappointed. I sit in between two iPad users in one class, and I wouldn't say that I've seen them do anything on their iPads that has made them worth the money to me. Plus, External or Zernal++ and RNote are free. Good notes, isn't it? While stylus support isn't perfect, the iPad is better. I'd say the interface of GNOME and the stylus support of Linux makes a Linux tablet more uh, makes make a Linux a tablet sense. make a lot more sense than a Windows tablet. Signed, Jaden. And okay, I did respond to this and, and say that. Um, when we were talking about that, we were talking about multi-point pressure, which is, you know, the, the MPP or multiple pressure, the, the variable pressure that you can put on for like drawing and things. Now we understand that it's good for, for note taking, but, um, I had mentioned that we only have anecdotal when it comes to that multi-pressure because none of us are really artists with a tablet. And, um, Jaden, if you do know that multi, uh, the the multiple pressure, the variable pressure works really well with Linux. Then then absolutely let us know. Um, <clears throat> now I, I do plan on testing out like Journal or External or however you say it uh, to try out uh, with a stylus taking notes on one of my Linux tablets. Which yeah, I really appreciate knowing how how well that works. I'm glad that you're able to use that in school. Thank you for emailing us and letting us know about that. But yeah, if you do know anything about that that variable pressure um, on tablets, then we would love to hear about it. It sounds like he's just using it for note-taking and just general text-based stuff while in class or whatever, you know. Yeah, which... and that just hasn't been most of our jams. I mean, yeah. we we use tablets, but we tend to, you know, type. Instead of taking notes. No, I do. <laughs> I type everything nowadays. Maybe it's just because we're old. Yeah. Oh, so many people don't know how to type nowadays uh, properly. And I don't think they're teaching it in school like they used to. Like in my day, it was taught on a... I think we did half of the semester. I took a semester in ninth grade, and now I type like 70 words a minute. <laughs> oh, Hey, no, because computing classes back back in the day, they weren't actual computing classes. Yeah. They were typing classes. <laughs> well, this was just the most boring, and I remember it being terribly boring. But it's been terribly useful throughout my entire life of the of these very very rote, mundane um, exercises of typing between two letters and that over and over and over, and it just seemed like it went on. But half the semester, now keep in mind, we're talking the 80s, half the semester we were using an electric typewriter, and then the other half 
we were on the Apple IIc. <laughs> Apple OE twos, or yeah. yeah. And because they they kind of, I think their reason for doing that was just to kind of give us exposure to a couple of different types of keyboards and that. But I like I talked to my kids, and I got one son. He's going to be a junior next year. And of course, both of the, both of my boys that are grown, they never took any real typing class, and so they're now they're stuck just kind of hunting and pecking, you know. And I can't that kind of. They've taken programming classes, but they haven't oh, taken typing classes. Correct. And it it feels like there's a trend these days of skipping right over that. That might be a mistake, uh, in my opinion. So, well, you know, like back in our well. Our days are a little bit different, but um, they're much more similar than what the days are now when it comes to school. Um, You didn't have handwriting classes unless you had messed up handwriting. I think it's kind of being treated the same way. You're not really being taught to type because you're being expected to know how to type because you've had exposure to computers your whole life. So it's your fault for not teaching your kids how to type. Oh, boy. Yeah, I can just imagine how that would go. Mm. Keep your fingers on the home row. Now type J Y J Y J Y J Y J Y J Y seven J Y seven. I actually had um, well on Linux computers um, for my my son when um, I think it was my little ThinkPad or was it the ThinkPad? It was one of the mini uh, ThinkPads I think that I let my son use to learn to type on. And um, just gave him different typing applications so that he could learn to type faster because he has um, dyslexia. And it took him a little bit more time to be able to type efficiently. So, yeah, I kind of did, you know, help him learn, but mostly by giving him fun games to play. Now, it's funny you bring that up because I was trying to teach the oldest boy, well, the oldest of my replacement children, um, how to type, and I and I asked him because I wanted to get an idea of where he was at. But these kids, somehow or another, they're picking up on a really effective hunting and, and pecking method. Where I, and I'd swear he's hunting and pecking with like two fingers and the thumb on the on the space bar. He's he's got to be doing about thirty words a minute like that. It's amazing to watch because they are doing homework. They're literally doing their homework on these laptops, and uh, they've kind of almost moved away completely to, you know, like work on actual papers. Uh, you know, the real younger, the, the younger kids are still using like actual paperwork, actual dead trees paper. But like the two boys, the one's in eighth grade and the other's in 10th right now, and it's all on a computer. And to watch these kids hunt and pack, I couldn't imagine learning it that way. And you got to know that to if you tried to teach them the proper way to type now that they've had so much experience doing it that way it would probably be tougher than somebody that's never sat behind a keyboard at all you know all right well thank you once again Jaden yep. but we 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 need to spin on here yeah this is going a lot longer than i thought it would <laughs> Every time we think we're going to have a short show, this happens. Yeah, yeah, we need to stop saying that. Uh, Okay, we got nothing for Check This Out. Moving on to housekeeping and announcements. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mintcast. 
If you see something you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us an email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram and Discord or post directly on HTTPS mintcast.org. And I, I actually announced today's show on Reddit today, so I'm quite proud of myself. Uh, next episode will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Sunday, December 24th, 2023. And there's a a link in the show notes to get that converted to your time zone. Next roundtable live stream will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, December 16th, 2023. And there's a link to get that converted to your time zone in the show notes. Next roundtable live stream will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, December 30th, 2023. And there's a link to get that converted to your time zone in the show notes. Live stream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. Wrapping up, Joe, where can we get more of you? Well, we do have one more announcement. I know that we're also going to be putting the spot into the um, overall mix of the audio. But HPR is having their New Year's show on um, the 31st into the 1st. So that's like 27 hours straight where you could potentially talk to all your favorite podcasters if you're in, into Linux podcasting. I know Joe Resington jumps on there. Um, sometimes I think the Jupiter Broadcasting guys might get on there, but I don't remember specifically. But a lot of the, the different people in the podcasting community will be on there. Plus people just from all over the world getting on and talking about Linux, talking about whatever makes them happy, and talking about the new year. So, yeah, definitely jump on there, hpr.org, I think it is, or something like that. But Or just do a search for HPR New Year's show, and all the information will be there. It's on Mumble. It's really easy to access. But oh, if you would have been lis- – if you're listening to the audio – only version you would have heard the uh, announcement at the beginning of the show, talking the official announcement, uh, talking about the HPR Hacker Public Radio uh, New Year's Eve show. There's going to be a stream too. Uh, the guy explained all that, so if you didn't catch it, just scroll back to the beginning and and play it again. He pretty much outlines it. Yeah. Um, if you like the sound of my voice, uh, you can catch me on a couple of my other podcasts. I am on the Linux Link Tech Show, tllts.org. I'm on, uh, Linux Lugcast, which is linuxlugcast.com. You can send me an email, jb at mintcast.org, or buy me a coffee with Kofi. Bill? Well, first off, Moss couldn't be here with us today, but you can, uh, uh, find him on his show, Full Circle Weekly News, Fantastic Linux News Podcast, by the way. Uh, Distro Hoppers Digest. Uh, you can email him, bardmost at pm.me. His mastodon is at zyvla at hosttux.social. And all of his other content information can be found at itsmoss.com. Somebody literally wrote out itsmoss.com. <laughs> um, as far as I'm concerned, you can get a hold of me at... Uh, Bill at mintcast.org. I'm Bill underscore H on Discord. My Mastodon is at WCHauser3 at Fostodon.org. Also, check out my two other podcasts, Linux OTC and 3Pat Truckers. Majid couldn't be here with us today. You can email him at 
Dr. Majid at mentcast.org. He's at Atypical Doctor on Twitter or whatever they call it this week. Uh, he's Atypical Anesthetist on Instagram. And the, he has a, uh, another show on Spotify called the Atypical Anesthetist Podcast. Eric also couldn't be with us today. You can hear and see him on this and the Linux OTC podcast, as well as the Linux Saloon and Linux Lugcast streams. If you'd like to get in touch with him, he can be reached by email at eric at mintcast.org. He's at unders- uh, eric underscore Adams on Discord. Uh, there's a link in the show notes to his Telegram, his Matrix, and his uh, Mastodon is at ericadams at fostodon.org. Links to all those in the show notes. Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Uh, someone for the audio editing, God knows. Uh, archive.org for hosting our audio files. Hobstar for our logo. AnitRD for the animated Discord logo. Londoner for our time sinks and various other contributions. Uh, I, someone for, <laughs> by someone, me. For hosting the server which runs our website, website maintenance, and the Nextcloud server on which we host our show notes and raw audio. i got to figure out a way to read that correctly when, it, when I'm talking about myself. Um, and last but not least, the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. And Co. This has been another episode of the Mintcast Podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us in our Discord channel and our Telegram group. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. Thanks to Interfection for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of Mintcast. Mintcast.